Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 10 of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, here with the podcast with everything you need to know in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. We are now in the double digits, 10 episodes already, and it could not have come with a more significant film. Like I said last week, we have made it out of Jack's early B-movie stage, and we have now arrived at his breakthrough role. Today we are talking about none other than 1969's Easy Rider. Now, I have to say, this was admittedly a somewhat intimidating movie to undertake this week just because of its cultural significance. This is unlike any of Jack's other projects that I've talked about so far. I've been talking a lot the past few weeks about 60s counterculture, and this, at this time, was really the film that spoke to that era. When I first saw Easy Rider, I believe I was about 13 years old, and I watched it on TV at my grandparents' house, my second home as a child. Understand that it's more than just a road movie. It's dark, at times tragic, and it makes you really think about things like how we treat people in this country who look and think differently than we do, how we define happiness and success in our society. I think despite some of the movies that I had already seen by the age of 13, these were not concepts that I was prepared nor experienced enough to think about at the time. I'd seen it several more times over the years, and I feel like each time I've seen it, I identify with it a little bit more. Do you remember how a couple episodes ago I mentioned how back in 2006 I attended the New York Film Academy? Well, I remember one of my first nights there, they gathered my class into the screening room and we watched Easy Rider. What are the odds, right? I remember being on the phone with my mom the next day and I said something like, it's almost as if they knew... I guess they were trying to show us what an impact a film could make without a huge multi-million dollar budget or a lavish production, but just with a concept that was new and different. With Easy Rider, you really see some of the players who were some of the standouts in this new Hollywood era of movie making. As I watched the movie again in preparation for this episode, And even just as I read up on it, I was like, my God, this is like a family reunion of the past four movies that I reviewed for you, both in front and behind the camera. There's no shortage of names that I've mentioned before, and a few that you'll continue to see come up again in future episodes. Easy Rider was written by Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, and Terry Southern produced by Peter Fonda and directed by Dennis Hopper. Cinematography was by Laszlo Kovacs, who was also the cinematographer for Hell's Angels on Wheels from 1967. And the production company that made Easy Rider? Raybert Productions, founded by Bob Rafelson and Burt Schneider, the very same production company behind The Monkees and of course, 1968's head. So what inspired this coming together? 
Well, Peter Fonda had become a fixture of this counterculture in The Wild Angels from 1966, which is another Hell's Angels outlaw movie. And this one directed by Roger Corman, which had co-starred Bruce Dern. See, I'm not shitting you when I say this is all one big family reunion. And reportedly, Peter Fonda saw a still of he and Bruce Dern together in The Wild Angels, and he had this idea for a modern Western. You know the old trope of Westerns. A stranger rides into town on his horse, gets the side eye from the people in the town. So with this new persona that Fonda was building, he thought to update that old trope with the story of two bikers traveling across the country rolling into various strange towns. Now, as I talked about a little bit in episode eight, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper's first collaboration together would be in 1967's The Trip. So I feel like they wanted to work with those same themes of LSD culture, the hippie movement, communal lifestyle, all the rebellion of the late 60s. But this time around, they wanted to tell a grittier story, a more real story. Take those new ideas and put them up against the backdrop of mainstream America. And I find that it really becomes like a David and Goliath story almost. While prior to this, it may have seemed like the hippies are taking over, drugs and free love are running rampant everywhere. You actually see here that the main characters in Easy Rider, as they roll through these southern midwestern small towns, they are, in fact, very much the minority. The film stars Peter Fonda as Wyatt, also known as Captain America because of his stars and stripes adorned bike and the American flag patches on his leather jacket, and Dennis Hopper as Billy. The characters' names are in keeping with the Western mentality, with Wyatt being for Wyatt Earp and Billy being for Billy the Kid. The opening scenes are completely wordless. Wyatt and Billy smuggle cocaine up from Mexico into Los Angeles, and they sell this haul, which brings them in a huge sum of cash. Their connection in making this deal is played by Phil Spector, during a brief on-screen appearance, if you really want a reminder as to what era we're in here. So after Wyatt and Billy receive their money, Wyatt inserts the cash into a plastic tube, and then he stuffs the tube into the gas tank of his bike. So with their payment safely hidden away, Wyatt and Billy mount their bikes, and they ride off, and... Wyatt and Billy are riding on the highway. We have the opening credits and the title appears. The soundtrack to the movie is significant all in its own right because you'll find 
There is no traditional score by a composer. It's the collection of songs that make up the score. And none of that hippie, psychedelic, dreamlike stuff. This is rock and roll. Because you're supposed to feel like rock and roll. Born to be The guys are headed across the country down to New Orleans. Their goal is to make it to Mardi Gras. And as they head through Arizona, Wyatt gets a flat tire. So they stop into this ranch where the rancher allows them to fix the tire. And then they stay for dinner with the rancher and his wife and their multitude of kids. And while they're all sitting around the table, Wyatt is looking around up at the house and at this long stretch of land and he's taking it all in and he's saying, this is a really nice spread you've got here. You should be proud. And he really means it. You can tell just with the way that he's breathing it all in. As they continue on their journey, they pick up a hitchhiker played by Luke Askew. He hops onto the back of Wyatt's bike and they roll on. They camp out on the land that night, build themselves a campfire. The three of them pass a joint around Billy asks the hitchhiker where he's from, but after a long pause, the hitchhiker says, well, that's a hard question. So the next day, this hitchhiker invites the guys to come visit his commune. And something that they've done here, as well as a number of other times throughout the movie, is a very different, very trippy transition between scenes. Rather than just cutting to the next scene, they have them split together. So before we get to the next scene, it's a rapid back and forth of the two scenes. And it makes it feel kind of disorienting, sort of like time is all meshing together. So the guys roll into this commune and it's on this far stretching piece of land. And they end up staying for the rest of the day. There's all these young people planting seeds to grow their own food. The place has their own stage set up because there's a mime troupe that regularly does performances. There seems to be an equal number of men and women on this commune, as well as small children. And something that I would not have known if I hadn't read it on Wikipedia, one of the children at the commune is actress Bridget Fonda, Peter Fonda's real-life daughter. So there doesn't seem to be any restrictions on who can take an interest in who at this commune. Free love is practiced there. And while the guys are there, they meet these two women, Lisa, played by Luana Anders, and Sarah, nice name, very biblical name, played by Sabrina Scharf, yet another person who we know because she played Shill in Hell's Angels on Wheels. Wyatt and Billy are getting ready to take off, and Lisa asks Wyatt if they wouldn't mind taking her and Sarah up a few towns. Billy isn't interested, but Wyatt says to him, look, we're eating their food. So Billy begrudgingly agrees. But before they leave, this hitchhiker gives the guys some LSD to hold on to, to share with the right people. And having a couple of passengers doesn't bother Billy for too long, because the four of them take off from the commune shortly after, 
and then they come up on a hot spring. And the four of them take the opportunity to strip down and go skinny dipping. So far with a few bumps along the way, and along with some moments of self-reflection while having a toke and gazing up at the stars, this trip has been mostly positive experiences. And then they cross on into New Mexico, where they come up on a parade marching through a city street. So Wyatt and Billy, on their bikes, join in on this parade with its baton twirlers and a cowboy riding a horse who keeps tossing his lasso onto the guys. But then the cops roll up, and abruptly we see Wyatt and Billy in a jail cell with the door slamming shut on them. Parading without a permit, of all things. The walls of this cell, it's worth mentioning, are covered, and I mean every inch, in different types of graffiti and scrawlings, end to end. And here in this cell is where they meet George Hansen, played by Jack. George is passed out on a cell bed, and when we first see him, he's groggily waking up, realizing where he is. He's mumbling to himself, oh no, George, what have you gone and done now? And you know how I just said there's graffiti of all types all over the walls? Well, I bring that up because I had read that prior to shooting this scene, Jack had etched his good friend Harry Dean Stanton's name onto the wall. So as I was watching this scene the other day, I had my eye out for it, and sure enough, on the wall, right above George's bed, it reads H.D. Stanton. Sort of a hidden nod to another fine actor in there. So George, disheveled, slowly sits up, stumbles to his feet, realizing that he's overdone it yet again, and I swear to you, I could feel what his character was going through. If you've ever been that level of hungover, your stomach has this sour, churning feeling, your head is pounding, and you're so dehydrated that the inside of your mouth is like sandpaper where you can't even gather spit. The most you can do is like a sticky, acidic paste where you have to smack your tongue and your lips. But it's like... You don't even have time to deal with the physical pain because you're too busy trying to figure out what the hell you did to get to that point. I could just feel it so hard in that moment. It brought back a couple flashbacks of some bad experiences. But now it's interesting how Jack got the role of George Hansen because he was not the first choice to play the character. The role was originally intended for Rip Torn, who was a friend of one of the screenwriters, Terry Southern. So as the story goes, Rip Torn met with Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda in New York in 1968 to talk about the role. And during this meeting, Dennis Hopper began ranting about all the rednecks he had encountered as he was down south scouting out locations. Rip Torn was from Texas, so he was wildly offended by this, and apparently the two of them almost came to blows. But it resulted in Torn withdrawing from the role of George, 
So the role was then offered to Jack, who had written the trip, which had starred Peter Fonda and featured Dennis Hopper, and not to mention, and I will admit that I did not notice this at the time, but Dennis Hopper also makes an appearance in Head, which Jack co-produced with Bob Rafelson. And don't forget, Rafelson's production company, Raybert Productions, is now the same company making Easy Rider. So it really seems that Jack would be the most natural choice for the role. I would imagine if Terry Southern had not written the part with his friend Rip Torn in mind, it would have first been offered to Jack. So as the three men are in the cell, an officer then enters with an aspirin for George. It's here that they find out that George is, in fact, a lawyer who does work for the ACLU. And apparently he finds himself in that particular jail cell a lot, as he is a fan of the booze. But he agrees that he'll help Wyatt and Billy get their charges dropped. So he works it out with the officers gets the guy's bail lowered, and they're all free to go. But not before the officers have some parting words for George. Come to find out George's father is a very important man in that town, and the officers mentioned he's going to be none too happy to find out George landed himself in jail again. But George convinces them that maybe we don't tell him this time. So the three guys leave the police station. Wyatt and Billy are reunited with their bikes. And before they part ways, George pulls out his trusty pint of Jim Beam. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Yeah! Nick, Nick. So they mention how they're headed out to Mardi Gras, and George responds how he himself tried to get out to Mardi Gras six or seven times, but never made it. And he sure wishes he were going with them. So Wyatt asks him, you got a helmet? And George laughs, and he says, oh yeah, I got a helmet. If you wanna be a The sight of Wyatt and Billy riding on the highway with George riding on the back of Wyatt's bike while wearing a gold football helmet is arguably the most memorable image from this movie through time. George adds a certain life to the movie, a levity to it. Like at this point, it feels like he's the comic relief on the journey. And during this sequence of the three of them riding down the road, they're pulling tricks. George flaps his arms as if he has wings. Billy hops up and stands on one foot on the seat of his bike as he's riding it on a highway. So it's really starting to feel more like an adventure. So that night, the three of them camp out around a fire. Wyatt offers George a marijuana cigarette. But George seems reluctant. He figures he's got enough problems with the booze. He doesn't need to get hooked on any harder stuff. But Wyatt assures him he'll be fine. 
So George gives in and goes ahead and lights up. And I've read, and this is well documented, that Jack, Peter Fonda, and Dennis Hopper were in fact really smoking during the filming of this scene. And at one point when Jack, as George, is in the middle of his lines, he begins to grin a little bit, just enough to notice it, and seconds later erupts in the giggles. And this was not scripted. It was a very genuine moment, which looked so good on camera that they kept it in the final film. That moment comes when Billy claims he saw something shoot across the sky. George tells him that what he saw was a UFO. And he goes into this long explanation of how the aliens from other planets are here. And they look just like the rest of us, and they walk among us. Hey, man, I saw something, man, but I didn't see it working here. You know what I mean? Well, they are people just like us from within our own solar system. Except that their society is more highly evolved. I mean, they don't have no wars. They got no monetary system. They don't have any leaders. Because, I mean, each man is a leader. I mean, each man, because of their technology, they are able to feed, clothe, house, and transport themselves equally and with no effort. You know something, man? I think, you know what I think? I think this is a crackpot idea. That's what I think. How about that? <laughs> How about a little of that? Think it's a crackpot idea. I mean, if they're so smart, why don't they just reveal themselves to us, huh? And get it over with. <laughs> why don't they reveal themselves to us is because if they did, it would cause a general panic. Now, I mean, we still have leaders upon whom we rely for the release of this information. These leaders have decided to repress this information because of the tremendous shock that it would cause to our antiquated systems. Now, the result of this has been that the Venusians have contacted people at all walks of life. All walks of life. <laughs> yes. And I don't know if this is just me, but I could not keep myself from smiling watching that part of the scene. Maybe it's because of that wide devilish grin that appears as he begins to lose it, that grin that Jack is so famous for. But in many ways, this is probably the scene where the laughter and the levity stops. Because by the next day, things start to take a turn. You have to remember where they are at this point. The guys are a long way from their home out in LA. They're down in the Southern Midwest. And especially at this time, it's certainly a time where locals are not as accepting of people who look and act differently from them. The guys stop into a diner and they sit down at a table and in one of the booths nearby, there's about six teenage girls. And the girls are smitten with them. They're watching every move they make. They're looking over each other to see the bikes out front. And George, of course, 
has a very subtle way of letting Billy know that these girls are over there watching them. But in two other booths, there's a number of local men, most of them older. They are the opposite of impressed with these guys who just walked in. They're actually disgusted to the point of anger that these three men are even in their town, let alone seated five feet away from them. And these locals are not being secretive about their distaste towards the guys. They're staring them down. They want them to know that they are not welcome there. I really feel like this is where the movie shifts. This is what the story is really all about. Not simply the lack of tolerance, but the question of how far is that lack of tolerance going to escalate? And it's all very ironic because think about why these locals immediately despise these three guys so much. It's because they see the motorcycles, the leather, the long hair, the patches on the jacket. And without any evidence, they see animals who have rolled into their town to cause trouble. But tell me, who is causing the trouble? What have these guys done to provoke any trouble by walking in and sitting at a table? So the three of them become increasingly uncomfortable and they decide to leave. So they get outside and the girls follow them out. They want to talk to them. They want to try to get a ride. And the local men come as far as the window, continuing to stare them down even as they get onto their bikes. So they leave. And that night, they set up a campfire again. And as they're sitting out there under the stars, George explains to Billy why these locals hate them so much. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're going to cut their throat or something there? I'm like, they're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. Now, I want you to understand, Easy Rider came out more than 50 years ago. And these are problems and the subsequent conversations that we have as a result of them, even today. That is the movie's legacy. It's etched in time as this rebellious road movie, but 
aside from obviously the drug deal at the beginning, what is so dangerous about the actions of the main characters? What is so scary? Nothing. They're not the scary ones. They're not the volatile ones. So all I want you to know plot-wise at this point is that Wyatt and Billy make it out to Mardi Gras. When they arrive in New Orleans, they visit a brothel that George had told them about. The two of them go in. Wyatt isn't particularly impressed. He looks at the murals on the walls. And one specific moment that I want you to notice. He looks up above one of the doors where a scroll is painted onto the wall. I had to actually pause the movie and rewind it a bit so I could see what it said. The scroll reads, Death only closes a man's reputation and determines it as good or bad. And the reason I went back to see what it said is because right after we see that scroll, we see a very quick flash forward. If you're not familiar with Easy Rider, you might not know what that flash forward means, but you will. Wyatt and Billy go into a room with these two prostitutes. Mary, played by Tony Basil. Yeah, that Tony Basil. And I need to point out, Tony Basil also appeared in Head. She danced with Davy Jones when he performed his number about when he becomes a man. And she was also the choreographer for Head. And as if that weren't enough, we will be seeing her again in a few weeks when we review Five Easy Pieces. Oh, and speaking of Five Easy Pieces, the other prostitute, Karen, is played by Karen Black, who would go on to be one of Jack's co-stars in said film. Wyatt decides to share the LSD that he was given by the hitchhiker at the beginning of the movie, the four of them take the LSD, and it results in a bad trip. Now, this is not the, for lack of a better word, cartoonish sort of bad trip like we see in other movies, like we saw in The Trip or in Psych Out, where we see zombies in bad prosthetic makeup. No, this was dark. It was emotional. You could see it the most with Wyatt. It was drudging something up in him, like it was cutting into his soul. Wyatt feels like he and Billy blew it. Billy is excited about the money they made from the deal at the beginning, like they've made it, they can start fresh. But Wyatt has a real lack of satisfaction. The tagline for Easy Rider when it came out was, a man went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. So maybe that's what Wyatt is feeling. Whatever cathartic experience he was hoping to gain on this trip across America, he was unable to reach it. I'm not here to give anything away because I really believe that those of you who have never seen Easy Rider need to have your own experience with it. But for those of you listening who are familiar with it, would you agree with me that it felt like there could have been so much more story to tell about this journey if events didn't transpire the way they did. It leaves you almost feeling robbed. And that's all I'll say on that. 
that it makes you feel robbed and angry at the circumstances. Easy Rider premiered on July 14, 1969 in New York. It also screened at the Cannes Film Festival in Cannes, France, and the event was attended by Jack, along with Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. The budget in making the film was a total of $400,000, and by the end of 1969, it had grossed more than $60 million at the box office, and it would earn Jack Nicholson his first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I read that when Jack saw the movie screen at Cannes, he said to himself, I'm a movie star. Well, if that's true, that he really thought that, he was right. The film also helped to usher in the new Hollywood era of movie making. It was this practice of making films in the late 60s and early 70s with a very small budget, $400,000 isn't anything, even for back then. And they would cater to these late 60s counterculture ideals and tapping into this new, younger audience that the traditional Hollywood productions were failing to do. These were other films that we now regard as classics, like Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and even the original Night of the Living Dead. And I think specifically with Easy Rider, These were issues that spoke to a generation. And maybe that's the reason why it's regarded as rebellious. Because it spoke on behalf of a generation. So I think there's a lot of takeaways that we have from Easy Rider. I think it speaks to intolerance. Intolerance that existed in 1969 and holds up five decades later. I think that fear that George spoke of is very much prevalent in the most angry, hateful of people to this day. I think also as a film, it speaks to traditional versus non-traditional ways of filmmaking, that you can create something very significant with a relatively small budget when you know your audience And I think just the fact that it is a road movie, it makes you feel like you're on the journey with the characters. So let me ask you, what other themes do you get out of Easy Rider? Do you feel similarly, or are there other things that you get out of it? If this is about to be your first time seeing it, I hope I've prepped you well for it. Easy Rider is not a hard one to find. You can find it on pretty much any streaming service. Also, Amazon Prime Video, wherever you rent or buy your movies. So, remember last week when I said we are officially out of the B-movies? Well, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. We have another B-movie to talk about. Next week, we will be reviewing Rebel Rousers. It's another biker movie starring our man Jack. So if you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review. Tell me how I did, guys. I just reviewed a real one. And don't forget to visit clovercrestmedia.com. Discover some other great podcasts to enjoy. And congratulations are in order to Clovercrest, as we are now a network of 30 original podcasts. 
Find us on your socials, You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Remember to subscribe to You Don't Know Jack on your favorite podcast app. Until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.